0: Hi, my name is Mark Kirchhoff, and the Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 33:14 to 17. God said, "My presence will go with you. I'll see the journey to the end." Moses said, "If your presence doesn't take the lead here, call this trip off right now. How else will it be known? that you're with me in this, with me and your people. Are you traveling with us or not? How else will we know that we're special, I and your people, among all other people on this planet Earth? God said to Moses, All right, just as you say, this also I will do, for I know you well, and you are special to me, I know you by name. The word of the Lord.
1: Hi, my name is Lindsay Kirchhoff. The New Testament reading found in Acts 1, 4 through 8. While they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but in only a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? Jesus replied, It isn't for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The word of the
2: Lord. My name is Dottie Stetzo. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John 21, 19 through 23 in the ESV. On the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to our Lord Christ. Christ.
3: You may be seated. One of the conversations that I enjoy having with people is conversations, particularly with young people, about faith and about a crisis of faith. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying I enjoy this because I like to see people in a crisis of faith, but I enjoy the conversations because it almost seems that for the first time someone is being honest with me. That so often in church or on Sundays, the the conversations that we have are covered with this veneer of a self-made faith or a kind of certainty that says, well, yeah, no, of course, I believe, isn't this awesome? I believe it. It's so great. So much so that if you're a person who has ever had an ounce of doubt, you almost feel like you don't belong with these other people, um, because it seems like nobody has wrestled. And so once in a while, I'll sit down with someone, uh, and typically it is a younger person who'll say, I'm not sure about this, and I'm not sure about this, and how come the Bible says this, but the Bible also says this, and how come this, and how come that, and what about this religion, and what about this thing? And when I was a little bit younger in ministry, my first response was to pull out all of my apologetics material. So, well, you know, there's this, and of course there's this, and there's this. But I've realized what a gift it is over the years to have someone actually be honest with me about the struggle for faith. What a gift it is to have someone actually say, do you know, there's something really absurd about what we have been asked to believe. And I think that, I've come to think that really there is a kind of faith that is worth losing. Can I say that in church? That there's a kind of faith that is worth losing. That there is a kind of certainty or surety that needs to be shaken and maybe even deconstructed. Because it was built with straw and it was built sort of in this way and we thought it was for sure, and and it was narrow, and it was neat, and it was perfect, and it was cohesive, and then something happened, and it was like pulling out one Jenga block, you know, and the whole thing went, and sometimes that can be a severe mercy of God. Sometimes that can be God's way of saying, let me save you from a small-minded faith. See, oftentimes the most rewarding thing about these conversations is watching a person go from the moment of saying, okay, I don't know what I believe anymore, to all of a sudden realizing that this faith is not ours to lose. That this faith is not ours to lose. I read a beautiful um, piece by uh, one of my supervisors in school in She wrote this piece about her own faith, and she said, I used to wonder why I still had my faith after all I had done to lose it. And after it was challenged by my own experience of life, and she's experienced uh, a fair amount of tragedy, unexpected turns. And she says, eventually I came to see that the faith wasn't mine to lose, really. That it was the faith of the church, capital C. And I participate in it, I don't possess it. Think about that for a minute. She says, I came to see that the faith was not mine to lose, it was the church's. I don't, I participate in it, but I don't possess it. I wonder sometimes if the unintended consequence of teaching people to have a personal faith, that the unintended consequence of teaching people to have a personal faith is that we've somehow come to think that it is a faith that we've made up or a faith that is private or a faith that is individual or it's a faith that we've sort of constructed so that when we encounter a crisis, we say, "Uh uh-oh, I've lost my faith. Forgetting or maybe even missing that this thing we call the faith, the Christian faith, the faith was not yours to begin with, that it's been handed down to us that what we have believed we have in fact received there's an old episode of um little house on the prairie and it's kind of a one of the christmas episodes i've got you know two older girls well older you know um, six and eight but they adore watching little house in the prairie christmas episodes and there's this one particular episode where, where the, the snowstorms, uh, you know, it, it, it's starting to snow really bad, and, and, and someone's going to go out to finish up the chores, and, and they say to Pa, make sure you put the rope up to the barn. You remember this? Make sure you put the rope up to the barn. Why, why would you put the rope up to the barn? Now fortunately, I married into a farming family, and so my wife comes from uh, a farming family. Her, her dad still farms in Iowa. And it was explained to me that in the older farming days, if you didn't tie a rope from the house to the barn and the snowstorm got really bad, you would not be able to see. And so then all of a sudden you would get out and you'd wander out and you would be, you would be uh, doing your chores or whatever and you'd turn around and you'd think, home is that way. And you'd start walking and then all of a sudden you think, wait a minute, I think home is this way. And, and then you start walking this way and then you get turned around and then all of a sudden you're lost out in The blizzard. And so the whole idea of a rope to the barn was a way to say, this is what's going to remind us of how to get home when the storm gets too bad. I think this is a useful metaphor for where we are as Christians today. 2,000 years later, this is Reformation Sunday. We think of that great event, but we also think of the unintended consequences of a reformation that sort of opened the way for people to make up their own versions of the faith. And so now we have someone saying, well, that's a heretical version, and that's the heretical version. No, no, you're the heretic, and you you know. And now we, there's all this confusion, and it can feel like we are the people of God wandering about in the snow, and someone's saying, does anybody know where home is? There's all these voices. There's this preacher and there's this preacher and there's this popular person and there's this worship song and there's this church and there's this thing and it can feel like a snowstorm of voices and influences and we just left the home to sort of do some stuff and now we're like, anybody know how we get back? I think there is a rope that leads us home. There is something that we have been given that ties us back to our ancient story. This series that we're beginning today is called Sacred. And the whole goal of this series is to say, you know, there are practices that the church has, things that we have done as the people of God through the years that remind us of who we are. Practices that shape our identity, practices that affirm our identity, practices that help us to center on Christ, practices that help us to reenact the gospel narrative. We'll say more about this in the weeks to come, but just even as a tease of this, one of the reasons we structure our service to have confession after the sermon and then the table, all of this stuff is for the service itself to almost take on the shape of a drama, the shape of a story. And the story is the gospel where we move from the high to hearing the proclamation to understanding the crisis of our sin to discovering the beauty of the grace of God to worshiping the Father, Son and Holy Spirit for this amazing gift of redemption and then being commissioned and sent out into the world. The whole service we do on Sunday is not meant to be uh, a variety show with little five minute, minute segments to keep the people's attention the whole reason we structure things as we do is to reenact the story. And so this series, Sacred, is about some specific practices that we do to keep us tethered, to keep us connected, to remind us, to reinforce who we are. And yet, the practices don't have any power in themselves, do they? If not, we'd say, well, then the people who had the most strict practices should be the ones with the most alive faith. And yet sometimes we'd say, well, I don't know, I grew up in a church that we had all these rituals and practices and, yeah, I didn't know anything about God. Right? Some of you would say that. So the practices in themselves don't have the power. Where does the power come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. And so, before we can begin talking about the sacred, as in the sacred practices, we have to talk about the sacred with the capital S, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is holy. In your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, we heard this is the New Testament reading. While they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for, for what the Father had promised. And he said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but in only a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Now listen, I've heard a lot of preachers say about verse 6, oh, those silly disciples, they still didn't get it. I've heard a lot of preachers mock the disciples for asking this question and totally miss why they were asking this question. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a set of promises that were clustered together, almost like a bundle discount at Comcast or something. I mean, it was like, when God did this, then you knew that this was going to happen too. You didn't just get internet, you also got cable, you know. So, and, the, the terrible illustration, but... The, the, The the hope in the Old Testament was, listen, one day God is going to rescue us. There's going to be an anointed one, a Messiah that will deliver. And when the representative of God brings the victory of God, we will see the following things. We will see a new temple constituted. We will see the Holy Spirit being poured out, Joel chapter 2. We will see... The kingdom being restored to us in the geopolitical way we thought. So they were, this was not a distraction question. This isn't the disciples having a, a you know, a distracted moment. Jesus is saying the spirit is coming and they're saying, what about the, the kingdom? This is a very much connected question. This is the disciples being attentive to the long and rich tradition of hope in the Old Testament saying, okay, Jesus, so you're the Messiah The cross wasn't what we imagined, but now you're saying you're ascending to a throne. We like throne language. We get throne language. We kind of have been waiting for a king dude to show up. And now you're talking about pouring out the Holy Spirit. We know that. Okay, so where's the other piece? What about your reign working through our nation again? And Jesus says, you've got the power part right, but you're wrong about the structure. You see, how many times do we expect God to work change, but we expect him to use the same old structures we're familiar with? When you say, I want to see God move, we say, okay, God, so you're going to work through these political structures, right? And you're going to work through these social structures, right? That's what you're going to do, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, you're right about the kingdom, but you're wrong about the structure. The power is coming, but it's coming through the Holy Spirit. And so he says, look, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In other words, there's a more complicated answer than simply silly question. There's a more complicated answer to this. But for now, all you need to know about is that the Spirit is how the reign of God continues on the earth. The first thing I want to say about the Holy Spirit this morning is, is, is that the, it is the Spirit continues the mission of Christ. The Spirit continues The mission of Christ. You remember Jesus stands up in Luke 4 and he opens the scroll to the prophet Isaiah, right? And he reads out of Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he goes on. He's saying, I am this anointed one. The Messiah is what that word means. But now he's saying, and you, this anointed work will continue through you, did you know, you do know this. <laughs> N.T. And, and Ride says this all the time, and it's a bit of like a, it's slightly patronizing, but it's also really funny. But he says, you know, Jesus' last name was not Christ. You know, like, like it's not like it, it was Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and they gave birth to Jesus Christ, you know. that <laughs> Christ is a title, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. It's the anointed one. And so when, in the book of Acts, when the followers of Jesus begin to be called Christians for the first time in Antioch, right, they're called that because they're saying, you're looking like little anointed ones. And this is exactly, I think, what Luke has in mind as his telling the story of the book of Acts. And he opens it by saying, look, the mission of Jesus the Spirit of God that came on Jesus to do these things, now that He ascends to his throne, guess how the mission continues by the Spirit coming on you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Stop for a moment and, and think about what this means. The spirit of God that was with Jesus is with you. The Spirit of God that was doing the mission of God and rescue and redemption is on you. As you greet your neighbor in the morning, as you get cut off by traffic on the interstate, as, you, as your car stalls in the middle of an intersection, as you figure out how to work with coworkers, as you raise children, as you talk to your spouses, that the Spirit of God. Is there continuing the mission of Christ through you? You say, well, that's kind of a scary thought. Good. It should be. But it leads to the second thing. And that is that the Spirit forms the body of Christ. See, we're happy to say the first thing. We're happy to say the Spirit of God carries on the mission of Christ because for some of us, that feeds the Lone Ranger, heroic figure sort of mythology, doesn't it? God, me and you and what army? Me and a, I don't need an army. I've got the spirit. And so I'm going to take on this and I'm going to do this because I've got the spirit and the spirit's with me and that's all I need. In fact, some of the people with the most boldness about all of this stuff tend to be the people who despise church. Have you noticed that? Oh, I love it. I've got all this passion and I've got and the spirit of God is with me and this silly church. The church doesn't even get it. I got no time. I can't be slowed down by the stupid church. And we imagine that the Spirit of God carries on the mission of Christ, but he's just encumbered by this bureaucracy called the church. And that if only we could be Spirit-empowered individuals, we could really get things done. As if the Holy Spirit was like a smartphone, you know, turning every person into a mobile office. (laughs) I don't know what's happened with my analogies this morning, but... They're not great. But the Spirit forms the body of Christ. The day of Pentecost in the book of Acts is traditionally considered the church's birthday. Because when the Spirit comes upon the followers of Jesus, He doesn't come upon them and say, Now you go, you radical individuals! He says, No, I'm forming a people. And strangely enough, I'm forming a people out of some very unlikely people. I'm forming a community, a congregation, a family, out of some very unlikely sorts. We've got former fishermen, and we've got uneducated, and we've got educated, and we've got different tribes, and we've got different nations. And Stanley Arawas says, We serve the world by showing it something that it is not. Namely, A place where God is forming a family out of strangers. I think that's gorgeous. You can talk to someone, and I read an article this week actually about um, um, someone who... It was written in the first person about saying, this is why we left the church. We were on fire for God and youth groups and, so on, and we left the church because it was this and it was this and they did this and I was hurt and da, da, da. And I went to the bars and I found great you know, community and friends who would hang out until the last call and then I, I had my rock climbing friends and I had this and it was so great. And then I realized I was longing for something else and so I crawled my way back to church And it was there I found something in this community that I couldn't find in a group that was built on common interest or common identity or anything else. And you know what it was? It was a community that believed in grace. Hauerwas is right. Part of what the church is, is it shows the world something that it is not. A place where God is forming a family out of strangers. Usually our objection to church is that we say, well, I don't like church because I don't fit. There's no one like me. And I understand that. But church is one of those strange places where the commonness is in the bond of the spirit, Paul says. Not in the bond of our personality types or the bond of our demographics or the bond of our bank account or the bond of our careers, but the bond of the Spirit. So I was thinking just quickly, and there there really ought to be a whole long series devoted to talking about our objections to church, but I thought of three that would be sort of related to this thing with the Spirit. And the first is that we we like to say that Jesus started a movement, not an institution. Ever heard this one? Oh man, the, the church? No man, you got it all wrong. Jesus didn't start... Institutions or congregations, he started a movement. He sort of had this viral, organic, guerrilla marketing thing in mind, man. Jesus was like Seth Godin before Seth Godin was Seth Godin. He was genius. Except that, Jesus did indeed start the church. You know, the the people who say this say, well, well, listen, I like the Jesus in the Gospels, but all the stuff that Paul... I mean, Paul's complicating all this stuff. You want to know something ironic? The Gospels were written long after most of the epistles were already written. In other words, Paul... There were congregations all over this region of the world to whom Paul was writing letters way before the Gospels, the stories of Jesus actually get written down so we say jesus didn't give us the church and the truth is the church gives us jesus it's the church that gives us the gospel stories of jesus do you think these men and women passed down stories that were written down about jesus that were meant to undercut the very congregations they were participating in no In fact, many New Testament scholars look at certain gospel stories like the one of Jesus asleep in the boat in the storm and they're saying, that's us, that's our little struggling congregation in Asia Minor and and we don't have, where's Jesus? He's gone away. And they tell themselves the story of Jesus still being with them as a reminder of our church is going to make it. So now all of a sudden you can't say there's the Jesus of the gospels and then there's the church that Paul invented. Not true that it's these churches that give us the stories of Jesus. You see how ironic it is to pit the two against each other? Secondly, the second objection is, I'm a kingdom person, so a local church doesn't matter. My favorite. I had dinner with the family a few years ago. Yeah, we go to New Life, but we also go here, and we also go here. Glenn, we are kingdom people. Now, I had only just started my meal, so I didn't want to be impolite, because if I'd made things contentious, I might not have been able to finish my dinner. But that is the single most ridiculous thing to say, to use kingdom as an excuse for not participating in the local church, because the church is how the kingdom is embodied. The church is how the kingdom of God begins to take shape here and now. And you're like, yeah, but the church is messed up. You're like, yeah, and the kingdom is now, but not yet. Just as the kingdom of God is not here in its fullness, so the, and, and Dr. Todd just did a whole month on this in Sunday school in September, just as the kingdom of God is not here in its fullness, so the embodiment of that kingdom, i.e. the church, is not there in its fullness. No, it's not a radiant and glorious and spotless bride, but it is how the kingdom takes on skin here and now. Saying that I'm a kingdom person but I'm not a church person is just as foolish as someone saying... A young couple that's not married, a man and a woman saying, Dude, we love the covenant of marriage. I mean, we believe in the marriage covenant. I mean, we want to defend marriage. We are covenant of marriage people. Oh, are you guys married? No, we're just going to live together for a little while. Like, just test it out. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, it doesn't work, right? Because the covenant of marriage is embodied in the marriage of a husband and a wife, a specific person, right? Specific couple. So the kingdom of God takes on shape through the local church. Moreover, this is often missed, that Jesus chose 12 disciples for a reason. This is something that's never taught taught about because we just read Acts 1 where Jesus is saying to the disciples, the Spirit's going to come on you, wait for all this stuff. Do you know what the rest of Acts chapter 1 is? Probably not. Because we don't preach on it. What do we jump straight to after Acts 1-8? We go right to Acts 2. We've even got a wonderful Jesus Movement band that was named after the second chapter of Acts. What's the first half? What's the last half of Acts 1? I don't know. Is it just like business? Like they, they draw lots to find out who's going to replace Judas and they come up with some guy named Matthias? I mean, who's ever heard of Matthias? We don't use his name very often for sons. why do the disciples take the time to replace Judas why after getting this promise that the spirit is going to come in power why don't they say well 11 plus the spirit is better than 12 without (laughs) they go through this whole thing and they write about it we're going to draw straws here and Matthias oh we're back at 12 why? why? Why does Jesus choose 12? What's he trying to say? He's trying to say (laughs) that the kingdom takes shape in a new kind of people. And just as there were 12 tribes that constituted the first covenant people, the new covenant people are symbolized by 12. And until we replace this 12th guy, Judas, who turned away, until we replace him, we can't really move on. And so once we get our number back to 12, symbolically we're saying, yes, 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 the kingdom community has begun. Theologians have a fancy word for this. They call it an eschatological community. In in, in, In sort of simpler words, you'd say, it's a community that says the new day has already begun. And Jesus marks that by choosing 12, not by a random number. I mean, we were joking this week, or I was trying to joke this week that maybe Jesus liked a base 12 math multiplication system instead of base 10. You know, sorry, nerd humor. Okay. No. Well, the third objection to this then is, well, listen, Glenn, that's all well and fine, but it's not about going to church. It's about being the church. You heard this one? I love this one. What if your kids said to you, Dad, it's not about having family time. It's just about being the family. See ya. <laughs> you're like, well, what, what? Where are you going? Dad, we just are a family. <laughs> like, but what about like family dinner or like, okay, you know, like, next, next family vacation we take, you're not coming. Because it's not about being together as a family. It's just about being the family, right? So we'll be the family while we're at the beach and you're staying home, you know? It's, 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 it's absurd. The church is certainly more than its gathering, but the church is not less than its gathering. The church is certainly more than a gathering, but it is not less than a gathering. And so the Spirit, when He begins to work, forms a people. Jamie Smith philosopher slash theologian sort of at Calvin College, describes this thing as maybe being a little bit like hot spots. That yes, God is everywhere. And yes, the Spirit is at work everywhere, no doubt. But that there are some spots that are hot spots of the Spirit's work. Paul's language, a little bit less techno language, said you plural, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, to you church in Corinth, to you Corinthians who are obsessed with showcasing spiritual gifts and having private spiritual experiences, Paul says, to you Corinthians, I just want you to know that together you are where the Spirit dwells. That something happens when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Something happens Something that you can't get with your iPod and a podcast. Something that you can't get with Spotify and the latest Hillsong album. Something that you can't get on a hike alone in the woods. Something that happens when the people of God gather together and it becomes this hot spot. This place where the Spirit says, Here I am. Here I am. Moving. Working. Working. And so the last thing we want to say this morning is that the Spirit empowers our witness of Christ. The Spirit carries on the mission of Christ. The Spirit forms the body of Christ. The Spirit empowers our witness to Christ. In the New Testament, there's so much more that can be said about this, but you, Paul more or less puts this in two sort of buckets. One he calls fruit, which has to do with our, the witness of our love for one another. The witness of the way we are patient and kind and forgiving and gentle and good and using self-control with one another. But there's this other bucket that he calls the gifts, and there are many different lists of these gifts. But the gifts are part of how we witness to Christ. Paul says there's, sometimes there's healings and signs and wonders. Now some of you, you're from a kind of church background, you hear that and you're like, Yeah, baby, Miracles! And others of you are like, I, I, uh, maybe, can we say that? What we believe as New Life downtown, as New Life churches, we believe in the continualist sort of movement. We believe that the Spirit continues to empower our witness to Christ, not just through fruit, but also through gifts. So when we have people up here in the front we say, Come and have someone pray for you. That's because we believe that the Spirit of God can break in in those moments and do some supernatural things. We believe the Spirit can drop in sometimes a, a, a word of knowledge or a, or a prophetic word. Now, yes, do they need to be cautions and all of this stuff? Sure. But listen, the response to something being misused or abused is not to ignore it. It's to model the proper use of it. Does that make sense? And our hope as a church is to say, can we model the proper use of saying the Spirit of God empowers us? Now, the truth is, this is one of the best, most encouraging news that we could hear. Because Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm not abandoning you that actually it is good for you that i go to my father because if i go guess who's going to come the spirit father son and holy spirit mark if you'd come and and get ready the worship team abby and the team there's no doubt that some of us have felt from time to time that that we are on our own that this sort of life of wrestling with the messiness of being formed as a people together in church. This sort of life of living as a witness to Christ. That this sort of thing is, is not just hard, but impossible. And that's why each week when we end, we ultimately find our way coming to the table. Because we're saying, God, I need you again. But the words that I want you to hear this morning are that you're not alone. You're not alone in your pain. You're not alone in your questions. You're not alone in your doubt. You're not alone in your struggle. That the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And so there's an old prayer the church has prayed and sung for centuries it's very simply these three words, veni, sante, spiritus. Now that's Latin. (laughs) I don't think any of us speak it. But I think there's something profound about singing it in Latin this morning, and it is this. It reminds us that for hundreds of years, if you imagine, if you close your eyes and imagined it, the followers of Jesus all along the way, those who have gone through debt and difficulty and disease and doubt, Followers of Jesus along this way have said these words, Come, Holy Spirit. That's all it means. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you stand this morning? We're going to sing this a few different ways. Each time we're just going to sing sing this in one note. Mark's going to give us a note and we're going to sing this phrase just monotone on that one note. If you close your eyes and lift your hands and we'll sing like this. Veni Spiritus One more time. Veni sante Spiritus we're going to take it up a third. Spiritus. One more. Take it up again. Spiritus. Now slowly and loudly, pick one of those three notes in the chord. Mark will give it to us again. And our voices will make the triad here. Here we go. Again. Quietly back on the one. Stay in this moment for a minute and listen to this poem from the early 1600s about the Holy Spirit.
1: Listen, sweet dove, unto my song, and spread thy golden wings in me, hatching my tender heart so long, till it get wing and fly away with thee. Where is that fire which once descended on thy apostles? Thou didst then keep open house, richly attended, feasting all comers by twelve chosen men. Such glorious gifts thou didst bestow, that the earth did like a heaven appear. The stars were coming down to know if they might mend their wages and serve here. The sun, which once did shine alone, hung down his head and wished for night, when he beheld twelve suns for one, going about the world and giving light. But since these pipes of gold, which brought that cordial water to our ground, were cut and martyred by the fault of those who did themselves through their side wound, thou shuts the door and keeps within. Scarce a good joy creeps through the chink. And if the braves of conquering sin did not excite thee, we should wholly sink. Lord, though we change... Thou art the same the same sweet god of love and light therefore restore this day for thy great name unto his ancient and miraculous right